afternoon. You're listening to Austin Monitor Radio on KOOP Hornsby Austin 91.7 FM. Radio for people, not for profit. We are streaming online at koop.org. I'm your host and reporter for the Austin Monitor, Jesse Devenins. And with us today, we have our editor, Liz Pagano. Hi. And just as a reminder for all you listeners, more information about the stories we discussed today can be found at austinmonitor.com. It's no secret that Austin suffers from racial and economic inequities. In fact, we just talked about this last week on our show. However, the city is working towards rectifying this history, and one way that it is striving to do so is by working with the city's new equity office. And this is a department that dives headfirst into conversations at City Hall about ongoing policy disparities and how to amend them um, for more equitable outcomes. To help us look into these conversations and why the equity office exists in the first place and the context within Austin that makes it necessary to continue to address these questions of equity, we have Brian Oakes and Kelly Coleman from that office. So thanks for coming, guys. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. Um, so the equity office, it is one of the newer departments at the city being established in 2016. and. Um, can you tell us why having a team that's dedicated to promoting equity within the city is just essential? Well, I think that, uh, you know, for us, we think the journey around equity uh, really starts with the city's mission. And, you know, the mission for the city of Austin is, uh, is to create the most livable city in the nation. And as we look at that uh, as a goal, and I tell city staff that as you get up and go to work every day, uh, we have to really do a close examination of who is this city most livable for and who is it not livable mm-hmm. for. And so if we are really serious about the mission and the goal uh, of the organization, the city of Austin itself, it really takes us into uh, this issue of equity because we can look at so many of our quality of life indicators. And along those indicators, we see that that race is a really reliable predictor of who's at the top and who's at the bottom. And uh, for us, it's really this ultimate goal of how can we really make Austin the most livable city for everyone uh, that really lives here. I'm interested in this idea of having an um, independent office to explore this. And as far as I can tell, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Austin's one of the few major cities that has a dedicated equity office. Is that, that is the case, right? There's, um, there's several across the country, um, but I think what makes us different is our origin story. Oh. Um, yes, there's an origin story. So um, the way that we were developed was really through um, communities of color organizing and sort of stepping into their power to push the city because we were coming out of the, um, the at-large, the old council, right, mm-hmm. the gentleman's agreement. And um, we thought it was an opportunity to get in there and um, create an equity assessment tool at the time um, because um, we were seeing it on the ground um, and living it, um, a lot of these racial disparities. Meanwhile, Austin's being recognized as the best place to live and all of, everyone's moving here, right? Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, uh, community thought that um, folks, some folks in the community thought that it would be a good idea to get an assessment tool. Um, and at the same time, the Latino Hispanic quality of life was really pushing for a diversity office. 
And so at a budget meeting, um, Delia Garza, Mayor Pro Tem, um, and the mayor, Steve Adler, put the two together to create an equity office that would then utilize the equity assessment tool. Um, and so we were really um, grateful that Brian Oaks was hired because he actually followed that resolution to the T and um, really uh, looked to the leadership of the community organizations that push for the equity assessment tool and then um, really uh, brought in folks to develop our actual tool. So, so over 900 hours of volunteer time was spent from community um, developing that tool. Is that, so that tool is like an ongoing thing that you guys employ? How does it work exactly? It is. So it's, um, it's the cornerstone of, of our work, and uh, it really begins at the departmental level. And so at the end of this year, we'll have 100% of our departments in what we call a, a continuous improvement cycle uh, of doing racial equity assessments. So they do the racial equity assessment tool. From the tool, we partner with an independent third-party evaluator, uh, which is University of Texas. They give our departments a SWOT analysis, looking at strengths and weaknesses as it relates, uh, as it relates to their personnel, policies, practices, procedures within the department. And then from there, we work with our departments to develop what we call a racial equity action plan, where they take on specific interventions or things that they're going to fix or you know do better and we give them like two years to do that and then they'll come back again and they'll do another assessment right cool. so this mm -hmm. is ongoing lifetime work, yeah, slow work. and it's, and and you know um it's slow but but it's well rooted mm -hmm. uh, and it's continuous that that over and over again you revisit it so equity is not this one one-time exercise that well, you do. <laughs> that's often you know the case that, right. that's why I was wondering. It's often reports on something. Right, so we say no quick fixes, that. right? Yeah. It's it's ongoing work, and, and I think um, the nuance of it is that we're ultimately trying to change the culture of the way that we function and do our business as a city. And um, really, equity work is really, um, I say it's a state of mind and a commitment to a process more than anything. Mm -hmm. And if you can adopt that state of mind and you can commit yourself to really uh, a really sound process around equity, uh, we'll get to good outcomes. Um, we'll have really well-designed policy. We'll have well-designed community programs. Um, but so many times we miss those steps along the way. And I think therein lies a lot of the frustration and pain, I think, that we hear from community about some of the city's initiatives and programs that they encounter and experience uh, on the ground. So you said 100% of the city's departments will be participating at the end of 2020. I'm just curious, have you seen any resistance or hiccups in the implementation of this? So so both, right? Um, I think one of the first things that I encountered is that you city government, uh, it just has a very risk-adverse culture, <laughs> right? I say that in a nice way. Yeah, that's a good way. And so when, we, so when we first started out with the, the assessment, I had some departments that said, well, I want to wait so that we can get a good score on it, right? And so even changing the mindset that, you know, an equity assessment tool is not about a score or a report card to get a high grade or a passing grade. Um, we're all at different levels in different places, and it's really about how do you sort of move yourself on that continuum and just get mm -hmm. get better. 
And so we spend a lot of time trying to um, kind of like sort of strip away the, the culture of blame and really sort of get people to, to step into, uh, I would say Kelly likes to, to, she says it the best, but she talks about um, that we need to learn how to become critical lovers of our institution. Uh, you love it so much and you love your job and you love what you do so much that you're honest and courageous in the critique of where it falls short. And that's okay if, if things are not at the level that we want it at, then therein lies how we we rally together to, to fix it and change it, right, and set ourselves on a different trajectory. But it's easier said than done sometimes in local uh, government because uh, a lot of folks are very fearful that if you find something wrong, then uh, everything around us is, you know. It's going to crumble. Yes. <laughs> um, before we delve any further into this, I was just hoping that somebody could define for me equity versus equality. I hear them used interchangeably and as far as I understand that is not supposed to be how they are used no it's not supposed to be they're not the same equity is um, more about outcomes I think Um, equality is there's an example that that folks use um, that I actually heard from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond about this monopoly game right okay and so if you imagine a monopoly game and um, people are playing, what are they doing? They're, they're buying property, they're um, passing go, collecting $200, they're getting the cards from community chest and winning at life, right? And imagine coming onto the board 400 years after, right? 500 years after, um, you still get to pass go. Do you get to what happens when you land on people's property, though, right? It's already purchased. Mm-hmm. It's gone, and you got to pay that tax, right? So it's 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 the difference um, that that makes everything. It's like um, the gap to goal. Brian says, um, you know, we even if we have equality now, um, because there's been so much history and so many policies that were so rooted in racism. Um, that in other isms that you, you know, the outcomes are still what they are because of that, right? You have to repair that piece and overcompensate in order to get the outcomes for folks um, in the community that are still being impacted by those systems, right? Yeah, so now that we have that cleared, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) I thought it was an important definition. Um, This equity assessment tool, it's a race-first based lens that you're looking through, and why are you approaching it from that standpoint rather than e- economics or something? So, um, and Brian, you can say more about this. Um, for when we came into this, um, it was clear that we were going to lead with race, and um, the the visioning that we had for this, we had a, a session where about 200 people came, and that is actually what bubbled up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think outside of that, we heard we heard that from the community and the visioning, but even outside of that, like Brian said earlier, race is the most reliable indicator for people's quality of life outcomes overall. And if you take issues like um, maternal and infant health for black women, class don't help you. So even when you have access to education, you have an education, you have a PhD, you might have access to resources, wealth, that doesn't save you. 
in those cases. And there's a lot of outcomes that are um, that are connected to that, right? And so there's something very um, insidious about how um, the history of this country and racism work together um, to create these outcomes. Yeah, I'll just add to that that I think it's the most controversial thing about our office. <laughs> That that is, is uh, you know, a lot of times we joke and we we feel like it's Groundhog Day because we we have this conversation almost every day uh, with mm-hmm. the 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 pushback uh, from many folks in our community who represent different constituencies or working on different issues and uh, the discomfort that comes from actually sort of stepping into racism and race and how it plays out in quality of life outcomes. And so I, I think, especially for a very liberal, progressive city um, like Austin, where people have um, all these sort of uh, you know different uh, uh, different issues that they're, they're they're focused around, I always find that it's really interesting to see um, how they respond to uh, this uh, this intentional approach for us to really lead with race, because it's always the elephant in the room that's quickly dismissed like we feel a lot more comfortable saying let's just talk about youth (laughs) you know we're gonna work on youth for all the youth issues for all of the city but I'll tell you that uh, Latino and black youth are five and seven times more likely to live in poverty compared to white kids in this city so then who are you really working with Mm -hmm. and talking about and if you're not talking about race then how effective are you really Mm -hmm. in the job that you're doing and we see that play out uh, across all of these issues. And so for us, I think that, that we feel like that we have to be uh, a voice that is that is always going to center the conversation around race and how it intersects with so many of the issues that our city faces. I say, I say unfortunately, um, race is at, the, is at the heart of it, every last one of them. LGBTQ issues, race. <laughs> um, women's issues, race right look at pay equity mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. people want to talk about that until we start talking about the intersection of race and gender you know because then you see that white women make more on the dollar than black men latinx folks and black women right so but do you, do you find that people are becoming even marginally more receptive to this idea oh yeah, yeah i think um it's offered space um I think for people to really understand how deep this stuff goes um, and sort of uh, it's also forged some uh, connections, I think, that are um, were unlikely before um, to really have like the critical conversation so that people change the way that they do their work. Right. Um, I think it's really about the how we do our work. Because a lot of it isn't about like what we do, but how we do it, you know, and who's at the table, who's who hasn't been at the table, mm-hmm. right? And it and those conversations change all of those dynamics. Can you point to some specific examples of this of how the how has changed or any success that city departments have had in using this approach? Um, yeah. Sure, go ahead. Oh, so you know, one of the the things that we are super excited about was last year uh, we actually just got our first uh, long-term contract we got a a five-year commitment that council approved 
uh, for us to host Undoing Racism workshops in partnership with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And so through that uh, funding and that contract, we actually do a monthly uh, workshop for community folks and city staff to come together uh, to really uh, push ourselves to have this conversation about how racism plays out in our community, but most importantly, how do we undo it and unravel that? And so we're really excited about that. And then also through the body of work that our departments are are doing and sort of seeing them uh, put into effect immediate changes. You know, one department that uh, I'll give a shout out to is our library department. The first year that they went through uh, their racial equity assessment, uh, one of the glaring uh, spots for them was that they uh, did not capture any demographic data on library customers. Mm -hmm. And so when you got your library card, the only thing that we knew about you um, was your address and your date of birth. And so imagine um, you have different branches across the city. Think about how do we know which books to have and which, what branches or what authors that we want to feature or what type of programming that mm -hmm. uh, we want to do. And so one of the things that they did immediately after taking the assessment was that they updated all of their data forms to include demographics so that they could be better informed in terms of what was happening at different branches and being able to identify um, where they meet and sort of the needs of, the, of folks that were uh, coming in and out of the branches, but then also look at gaps of who wasn't coming into the library given the demographics uh, from surrounding neighborhoods yeah. too. Um, your office also recently partnered with the Office of Police Oversight as, as well as the Innovation Office, and uh, you produced an analysis of the APD's racial profiling data. And this analysis showed that not only are Black and Latinx Austinites more likely to be pulled over, pulled over, but also more likely to be searched when they're pulled over than white and Asian drivers. Um, not only that, but these disparities are also getting worse. And so... Were you surprised by this result? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, tell me more. <laughs> um, unfortunately, uh, we were not surprised. Um, we we looked at a few of the other reports before we did um, did this one, and so what was released by APD, there wasn't really any analysis, and so we went in and and did more in-depth analysis, and so it, it wasn't surprising or shocking. It was um, disappointing, mm -hmm. you know, um, but we've been working with APD. Um, we just completed our first round of assessments with them, and so we're waiting to get our um, third-party evaluator report back. Um, but, yeah, no, we, we were not surprised. I think um, I think that... It's it's something that we see across the country, right? So it's pretty standard, um, but that's not okay, you know? And um, for us um, to think that that was a, the original racial profiling report was a good report um, is startling. And I think people should be like, ah, what's happening? Um, but what we see is, people being more shocked by the the foolishness that went on with um, uh, Assistant Chief Newsom, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As more like, oh my God, 
when you have these outcomes here that have been here solid for a really long time, that should be more concerning to me, I think. I, you said that you're waiting for the third party assessment to come back, but in the meantime, are you guys as an office working with the Austin Police Department in any other capacities? Mm -hmm. We are, so um, we have sort of multiple projects going on. Uh, right now, we are, council passed a resolution, uh, I believe it was back in December, that uh, where they were requesting a more comprehensive audit of different components of APD's operation. So we're uh, in partnership with the Office of Police Oversight uh, right now to identify a third party uh, to, that would come in and help do um, more of that analysis and evaluation for us. And then uh, we also are, um, you know, we have a sort of body of work in terms of, you know, APD, we decided to do a little bit different on our equity assessment process. So instead of just doing a department at the whole level because of their size and, uh, you know, some of the issues and, and level of scrutiny that they have, we actually are doing the equity assessment by each division within oh. APD. And so we just completed our first, our, re, our assessment of the first five divisions and we're going to be gearing up uh, to take on our next five divisions uh, later this year. And as Kelly mentioned, uh, we're hoping to have the report and analysis of those first five divisions out in uh, sometime in March of this year. And I know that from a community standpoint, one of the divisions that we actually did do the equity assessment on was the, uh, uh, the training and recruitment. So the training academy and recruitment which there's a lot of conversations around that uh, right now. And so I think it'll be timely in terms of the conversations around uh, how the city decides to move forward uh, with new recruitment classes and things like that. So we hope that this, this uh, analysis would help inform that decision that council's gonna make around that. And I just wanna go back to this, this study that was released recently really quick. Um, because in response to it, Police Chief Brian Manley said that he would like to have a third party do another assessment of data analysis to understand why the racial disparities exist. And would another study be helpful and why not or why? So one of the things and the recommendations that we are pushing for is for action. And um, one of the, the, the goals, so, there's, so if, as a community reads the report, there's two things that I'll call your attention to. Um, one is that we ask that there be a full acknowledgement that the, the racial disparities and the inequity really exist in the data. Uh, I will be honest to tell you that in a lot of our conversations with the police department, um, you get like a yes but where, you know, yes, we see these numbers and we see the data, um, but every city in America has this problem. Yeah. So I say, when do we dare to be exceptional? And when do we dare to be, you know, the, the best in class city that we uh, say that we aspire to be, right? And does that make it acceptable? Uh, because we see it everywhere. So uh, we believe in, in a full sort of acknowledgement and embrace of the data to say that we have a problem because we can't, uh, we can't be a partner to help you fix a problem that 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 you don't really fully uh, 
agree or believe is a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing in our recommendations is that we actually call for uh, a specific goal. And to me, the only acceptable goal is that these disparities get reduced to zero. And we have a strategic direction that guides us until 2023 as a city. And so we're saying we need to be at zero by 2023. By 2023, you should not be driving the streets of the city of Austin and have race be a reliable predictor of if you get stopped, if you get searched, if you get arrested, if you get cited. And and we think it's simple, right? And so we really are calling attention to that recommendation and really talking to community about when do we when do we uh, have a level of accountability to say at this point in time we no longer will accept this and this is not the fair administration of justice in our city when we can continue to just predict these results based on race. So another component of livability in Austin and looking towards uh, making equitable outcomes is the land development code that seems to crop up everywhere right now. So I know that your office did a study in 2018, way back when, think think back, um, when this was called Code Next, and you studied the equity of the proposals at that point. And in this report, um, I pulled out this statistic because I thought it was interesting, 82% of the city staff that were tasked with developing this Code Next were white, and um, your recommendation therefrom was that more diversity should be integrated both into the process as well as to the policy development. And um, I'm wondering if you've assessed the new version of the LDC in a similar way, and if so, if your recommendations have altered at all. Um, We haven't begun that process yet, but community definitely has asked us to. we we're being pushed to do it. There's a few uh, resolutions from a few different um, commissions that are asking us to do that, um, and I don't think that our uh, recommendation would change. I, I think it's more about process mm-hmm. and who's been involved, who has not been involved, who has been listened to, who has been invited to the table, and I we keep hearing, and I'm just gonna be honest. This is me speaking, Kelly Coleman, mm-hmm. um, is that uh, a lot of what we hear is, well, imagine Austin, there were four years of listening, and it's like, well, who? Who did you listen to? And who's really benefiting from this, right? And why the rush, you know? Um, and, I mean, at the end of the day, I think even if at this point we were offering the cure, would people even be able to take it because we have such a level of distrust from I not when I say community I'm not talking about everybody I'm talking about people most directly impacted by inequities right mm-hmm. people who can't find people who 42% of black uh, of the of people experiencing homelessness are black right 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 and and look at considering school closures considering what happened on Riverside right all of those things wrapped together. Even if you had the cure, people don't, you're not listening. So, you know, like we need to, we need to reevaluate our process. And I just think that there's a level of, of, you know, just disregard 
I think for the people who need to be in the center of this as government, who we're responsible for, right? The people who can't, the people who don't have enough, those should be the folks that we're most concerned about, not the people who have everything. So. I guess my last question before we wrap it up is what, what do you think it's going to take to make equity part of our culture that's embedded within the city? I think it's going to take praxis, right? I don't think that it's like, you know, all of a sudden, bloop, you know, we're all equitable um, because all of us have places that that we're not clear about in social identity and history, right? But if we start really interrogating history, stop operating ahistorically all the time, Mm -hmm. if um, folks get into the practice of, you know, um, uh, really – sort of centering the people most directly impacted, right, and doing the hard pre-work before, right? It's like, how do you even solve a problem if the people who are living it don't identify that as a problem, right? You know, but you over here creating solutions for your problem, for pretend problems, not the actual issue. Um, I think we can get there, but it takes practice, right? When you when you mess up, you got to be able to say, wow, that was a mistake, and I learned this, and this is how I'm going to do it different from here on out, right? I think it's also about relationships and being accountable, you know? A lot of, we like to surround ourselves with people who are like, yes, man, nobody that tells us the truth. That's, that's the critical piece, right? It's like that critical love um, where you can be honest about, yeah, you know, this wasn't so great. You know, but I I, honestly, I think it's just it's practice. And once you have the lens, like once you see it, it's like it's hard to unsee it, you know, and and things get get real clear. But they also get really complex, I think, because of all the history and and all of the things that are like just constantly happening. It's like you got to have systems change, but then people need need right now you know there's people being impacted right now in the streets so you have to be able to do both it's hard you know to add to that um i um so in this work i've become a lot more uh emotional and sharing of my feelings yes he has (laughs) (laughs) and and i think (laughs) and so what we um we talk a lot about, uh, especially with with staff of our city. Um, it's easy for us to to gravitate towards the data, looking at the numbers, um, or the the goals, the objectives, the action plans, the strategic plans, uh, even to you know the mission statements and the core values. Uh, but the part that gets left out a lot um, is around. How do we sort of bring our hearts into the work that we do? And do we see the humanity in the people that we we are serving? And I would sort of say that for local government, or I think for any government at any level, it's, it's critical that we bring um, our hearts and empathy into the work that we do. Because if you look historically, I believe that the worst things... Uh, in history that have happened to people have been a result uh, of government staff uh, shutting themselves off from their feelings and their hearts and the people that it impacted. And we do a workshop um, around uh, racial equity that we do for the city staff. 
And one of the scenarios that we take them through is thinking about uh, being a government employee uh, for Nazi Germany. And if you think about it, um, they had folks who were procurement purchasing agents. Mm -hmm. Someone had to actually do the contracts and purchase the gas and the bullets that were used to commit genocide. Um, Think about it. They had transportation planners. Somebody actually had to plan the timing and logistics of trains to so efficiently load Jewish people on them and march them off to concentration camps. Think about all the jobs and the roles Mm -hmm. that people ate their breakfast in the morning, got on the bus, got in a car, and went into a job to do that, right? And so a lot of times we, we talk about which person are you? When you show up for the job that you do, who are you, right? And and do you disconnect yourself um, from what happens to people as a result of what you do? And we think that we can so easily lose our way um, when we can do that. And we don't even have to go overseas. We can look at this nation right here. You think about the government staff that actually helped make the Trail of Tears possible. The government staff that helped make... Um, switching of a water source in Flint, Michigan, that was tainted and poisoned with lead, and now we got thousands of children Mm -hmm. suffering from lead poisoning. Just government employees Mm -hmm. getting up, doing the job every day, like so many of us do every day. And so we have to, we got to figure out how to bring that uh, into what we do, and we think that if we can do that, um, so much stuff can change, and we can really transform the way that we function, and the way that we serve and lift people up in our community at the end of the day. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have today to delve into this interesting, complicated, and (laughs) multi-layered subject. But thank you so much again, Brian Oaks and Kelly Coleman, for joining us here on the radio. Thank you so much for having us. And I'm so excited that y'all are even looking at equity issues and bringing (laughs) us all. So yes. If you listeners are still curious or want to refresh your memory, you can listen to a recording of this interview at austinmonitor.com. Now it's time for Tracy Schultz, who's on next with What's News at 2.30.